Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals podcast. The Day They All Forgot by Ian Gordon I'll never be able to convince you that the story I'm about to tell is true. But as far as I'm concerned, catharsis isn't about proving a point. It's about getting something off your chest. Let me start by saying we were all supposed to forget. Mark and Richard, the florists. Mr. Pace, the greengrocer. Wes, the butcher. Krista, the cartographer. Rashid, the librarian. Oliver, the exchange student from Chicago. Every last one of us. And they would have pulled it off, too, but for me. So, here goes. It was late March in the town of, well, let's just call it Pelton. It's a small town in County Durham, up in England's northeast. It had been a wet month, and many of us Peltoners had spent most of it indoors. But the day in question, the one they all forgot, started out dry and clear. I remember rising just after 7 a.m., slipping into my dressing gown, and sitting on the deck in the backyard, absorbing the precious sunlight. I was a bachelor at the time, and had no company to speak of, other than Mulder, my not-so-loyal cat. He lay sprawled on the deck at my feet. The poor little fellow had spent the preceding weeks glued to the radiator. Anyway, it was a wonderful start to the day, and so I dressed, rather enthusiastically, and set out to Kath's Bakery on Main Street. Fresh bread on a sunny morning is to me like worship to the gods. This was around nine a.m., I might add. It was during that stroll along the relatively quiet main street that I noticed the first oddity—a van, an innocuous-looking grey van. What's so strange about a van, I hear you ask? Well, its windows were blacked out for a start, obscuring the driver, and there was something unusual about the speed in which it was moving—crawling it was, inches from the curb. I was half convinced the side door would open at any moment, from which any number of masked assailants might emerge, hell-bent on dragging me inside. But there was something else, too. Its exhaust was pumping out a vast quantity of fumes—bluish vapours that quickly dissipated in the warm air. I didn't like the look of that van whatsoever. Where it had come from, and what its purpose was, in a town like Pelton, I hadn't the foggiest. Hoping my numerous glances hadn't drawn any undue attention, I continued in the direction of Cath's. Bob the Webb, the former Pelton school groundskeeper, emerged from the bakery clutching a paper bag full to the brim with French baguettes and baps. The hairdresser, Diane de Witt, wasn't far behind him, a beautiful bloomer wedged between hip and forearm. Then out came Janet Morrison, zealously clutching a monstrous cinnamon roll. It was the size of a football. Entering the bakery, I soon heard from Kath that it had been a busy morning—unsurprising, really, considering the weather. Folks were making the best of it, Kath had said, many of them heading off into the hills, or out onto the park down by St. Bart's, all of them with the word picnic on the brain. And so, as far as Kath's goods were concerned, it was slim pickings for me, the trays of breadcrumbs and inexplicable excess of iced buns not quite tickling my fancy. I extended the obligatory courtesies, and excused myself. Stepping back onto Main Street, I was immediately unnerved by the sight of— Miss Jenkins, an old-age pensioner usually confined to Kettle's retirement home on Platte Lane. What she was doing out and about on her own, I 
hadn't a clue. But it wasn't the fact that she'd apparently gone AWOL that bothered me. She was standing on the opposite side of the street, her back dropped the old snooker hole, and she was looking right at me, her misty eyes agape. You see, I knew those old eyes well. My elderly aunt had been up at Kettles prior to her death some months earlier, and Miss Jenkins was often by her side in the community room. She'd been vacant, suffering from dementia, I think, her eyes like arcade machine coin slots. But there on the street, those eyes were like black pools, wide opaque pits, drawing me into their depths, feasting on my resistance, willing me to approach them. But the old lady beat me to the punch. Out she stepped into the road, right in front of a passing vehicle. The car, a maroon estate I'd rather not describe in detail, ploughed Miss Jenkins into the road, pulverizing her. I looked away, but not before her skull popped like a balloon under the wheels. Those eyes, those staring vacant eyes, were now little more than a milky fluid flowing east along Main Street. The driver of the estate car, the chiropractor, Nigel Phillips, climbed from the vehicle in a state of shock, clutching his sides, holding back the vomit. He managed to yell a couple of times, his expletives directed at the body parts beneath the car, before succumbing to the gravity of the situation and collapsing in a heap next to the corpse. A number of onlookers rushed to the aid of the victim, but quickly reached the same conclusion. Ms. Jenkins was irredeemable. I crossed the street, and found myself standing in approximately the same position Ms. Jenkins had been standing, prior to her mad leap into the road. And there, surrounding me, were a number of pigeons, each of which had discovered a sizable bounty of breadcrumbs. I looked up, straight across the street to where I had been standing just minutes earlier. Had old Miss Jenkins really been eyeballing me? Or had those dark, unfathomable eyes been seeking Kath's bakery? But it didn't matter, for things were about to get a whole lot stranger. Nigel Phillips, who had been sobbing quietly for a space, was now on his hands and knees, crawling in the direction of Miss Jenkins's remains. The onlookers I mentioned, Pat Jones and Cheryl Davis, joined me amongst the pigeons and the breadcrumbs. Only one passing car had stopped, the driver of which, Steve Moore, a door-to-door salesman, was sitting calmly behind the wheel, mobile phone in hand, attempting to contact the emergency services. Then, quite abruptly, the phone in his hand fell to his lap, as his eyes were drawn to what poor Nigel was now up to in the road. Pat and Cheryl, who, unfortunately, were a couple of paces ahead of me, had front-row tickets to the diabolical spectacle. Nigel was on all fours, sniffing at the remnants of Ms. Jenkins. He approached what can only be described as a broad puddle of viscous fluid, and out came his tongue. Like a dog, he started licking that stuff up. Pat turned to me and yelled incoherently. Cheryl took a step towards Nigel and silently waved at him, unable to find her voice. And then Janet Morrison, who was still clutching that now partially eaten cinnamon roll, came running into the road, screeching at the top of her voice, "'Nipper, no! Get away from the— Stop it, Nipper! No!' And I realized that she was addressing Nigel, a grown man of forty-two, addressing him as her very own bull mastiff, a dog we all knew by the name of Nipper. "'Stop it, Nipper! It'll make you sick!' she continued to yell as she approached him, the crumbling cinnamon roll dusting the tarmac. But Nigel kept on lapping that crimson stuff up, his hands and knees glued to the ground beneath him like a man possessed— and Janet grabbed him by the scruff of his neck, 
yanked him backwards, and we watched in terror as he turned to her with a mouthful of bloody teeth, the bodily fluids of Ms. Jenkins dripping from his chin. He barked then, just like a dog, and I shook my head in disbelief. What on earth was going on? I turned to Pat and said, Are you seeing what I'm seeing? That is Nigel there she's got a hold of, isn't it? But before Pat could answer, Nigel sunk his teeth into Janet, and she was shaking him violently in an effort to free herself. A pale-faced Steve Moore emerged from his white hatchback, clutching a wheel clamp, and rushed to Janet's side. He had been a boxer in his youth, a regular tough guy, and so I think he'd calculated the risk before exiting the car. Vigorously, he hit Nigel over the head with the clamp, and we watched as the ravenous cannibal fell to the ground, leaving a distraught, wounded Janet, screaming, Nipper! Nipper! And then, turning to Steve, What have you done? And she was on top of the biting dogman, soothing his unconscious frame, tenderly stroking him like the bull mastiff she believed him to be. And I swear, as I watched, Nigel Phillips began sprouting hairs. A fine coat it was. And I know Pat and Cheryl saw it too, for Pat fled, screaming, He is a dog! He's a fucking dog! And Cheryl, still lost for words, simply pointed, shaking her head, silently cursing. Main Street was turning into Busy Street. Folks were everywhere now. A group of kids watched from the shade of Norman's Arcade. A dozen cars had piled up behind both Nigel's car and Steve's on the other side of the street, three of which were honking their horns in exasperation. Pete, the barber, and Danielle from the post office were out by the Murphy Monument, trading expletives, and Big Nick Forrest was on the roof of Forrest's DIY store, clutching a mobile phone. I hoped the latter would have more luck with the emergency services than Steve had had, but as I was about to find out, the emergency services would be steering clear of the town of Pelton for the rest of the day. In a state of shock and on the verge of a panic attack, I fled Main Street in the direction of Platte Lane. I figured things might be quieter near the retirement home, and that at least, if anything, I'd be able to reach somebody inside with responsibility for Miss Jenkins, and, with a bit of luck, somebody with the means to contact the police. I couldn't shake the vision of Nigel the Bullmaster from the forefront of my consciousness. I could see him there in the middle of the road, the blood of Miss Jenkins staining his cheeks, twitching in the lap of Janet Morrison, sprouting coarse hairs from head to toe. Ah, I mean, what the hell was going on? And it didn't stop there. I saw and heard other things en route to Kettle's retirement home. There was a chap out on the balcony above Rigby's newsagents. The man, a stout fellow I didn't recognize, yelled something to the effect of, I am a plane, and proceeded to mount the railing. He hovered there a few seconds, before hurling himself into the air, his arms outstretched. But that chap was no plane. Down he came, plummeting to the hard pavement beneath him, his ankles disintegrating under the weight of his body. He let out a horrifying scream, before passing out in a crumpled heap in front of the newsagents. I'm ashamed to admit that I didn't run to the man's aid, but you might forgive my lack of concern if I were to tell you that I saw coarse hairs sprouting across the man's motionless face as he lay there on the ground. Were they all turning into animals? And then a lady in a bikini emerged from a semi-detached bungalow on the corner of Platte Lane. Blood stained the corners of her mouth, 
and as she spied the still figure of the stout fellow across the street, she took off at a run, screeching. Those screeches faded into the general cacophony of the chaos I'd left behind on Main Street, as I continued in the direction of Kettles. Earlier in my story, I made a point of mentioning that the day had started out dry and clear. Well, as I walked the length of Platt Lane, I saw storm clouds gather overhead. The sun was quickly blotted out, and the black shapes consumed the skies. The rain followed almost instantaneously, a heavy rain full of hate and venom, the scent of petrichor filling my nostrils. I was dripping wet by the time I reached the retirement home, and I was quick to step into the reception area, expecting to find a desk clerk or two. But the reception area was barren, and I noted, to my horror, that the power was out. Saturated, I made my way into the long corridor that led to the community room. Very little natural light penetrated the gloom, and, as I crept along the passageway, my mind was littered with the horrifying images I'd thus far witnessed. Miss Jenkins's strange gaze, Nigel Phillips's lapping tongue, the man who had leapt from the balcony, and the screeching lady in the bikini. What was happening to everybody? Was it some sort of contagion? Or was it something else, something more sinister? I sauntered along that dark corridor like a snail across a paving stone, painstakingly slow and excessively moist. I was afraid to reach the community room, afraid of what I might find there. Where was everybody? Where were the staff? Towards the end of the passageway, a shaft of light penetrated the darkness the source of which was the natural light of the community room. Its double doors were wide open, allowing the light to tumble into the corridor in abundance. But that as of yet unseen light source cast doubtful shadows into the corridor, elongated, dark shapes that waxed and waned, shuffled and skulked. Those shadows belonged to Kettle's residence, and my hesitation was all the more marked as I speculated as to the nature of their respective conditions. Approaching the double doors, I tried my utmost to remain furtive, to minimize the reverberation of that horrible squelching sound my saturated shoes were making. As I stepped into the light of the community room, I stifled a startled shriek as my gaze fell upon the figures prowling about within. There were a dozen or so residents in the center of the community room, each of them forming a circle, shuffling round and round in single file. Their faces were blank and pale, their gazes glued to the back of the person in front. Detritus surrounded them, foodstuffs including flattened fruit and trodden breadcrumbs. I listened, transfixed, to the sound of a voice muttering among their number, the source of which I quickly traced to the centre of the circle— and as those aged, shuffling bodies continued their shaky, awkward procession, I saw a figure at the centre of the circle, a lady, much older than the rest, so old, in fact, that some of her appendages appeared to be petrified, literally frozen in place. Her eyes were tightly closed, and from her mouth came indecipherable mutterings and sporadic cries, along with crimson dribble and mucus, all of which was spat directly onto the floor. And there, on all fours at the ancient specimen's feet, was one of the home's nurses, 
Entirely naked she was, lapping up that greasy foul excrement with a tongue twice the length of a human being's. The aged lady must have sensed my presence, for quite suddenly her eyes popped open, revealing dark, abysmal pools, just like the voids from which Miss Jenkins had gazed across the street. This act of seeing seemed to alert the others. All twelve circling seniors and the naked nurse on the floor immediately turned their eyes upon me, and stared lustfully. There was little else I could do. I turned, and fled. But the seniors were after me, their faithful nurse leading them pack-like along the dark passageway. Along the length of that black corridor they followed me, in total silence, and continued to follow me, as I skipped through the barren reception area, and back out into the pouring rain. I ran and ran, not caring where I ended up, anything to escape the madness of that morning. But the horror, whatever it was, was everywhere. I saw the mauled remains of domestic house-cats, human fingers projecting from their punctured eye-sockets, dogs, rabbits, and other beloved pets quite literally pulled apart by human hands there, broken bones and entrails scattered haphazardly across roads and footpaths. I saw strangers engaged in sexual intercourse, their bloodied bodies chafing against the cold, wet earth, and the dancing. Oh, God, the dancing! What can I ever say about it? Everywhere people danced, and wherever the figures moved in that unsettling, rhythmical way, I heard the same phrase yelled in frenzy, over and over again. Dancers of the blood dance! We're the dancers of the blood dance! And those flailing bodies, joined together by some demoniac harmony, were covered from head to toe in razor blades, literally taped to their naked flesh with sticky tape. And they were throwing themselves at each other, writhing up and down, slicing breasts, buttocks, and genitals alike. Chunks of flesh coated the ground wherever I looked, blood poured wherever I didn't, and that maddening blood dance continued inexorably. Bodies were flayed— and yet they continued to writhe, continued to sing, continued to yell at the tops of their voices, We're the dancers of the blood dance, before succumbing to blood loss, and collapsing into crimson piles, to be eagerly fed upon by naked, hairy underlings on all fours. Somehow I managed to slip by unnoticed. My brain was like a scrambled egg, but I made it home— and was in possession of just enough sense to make sure that I locked and bolted the door behind me. I ran through the house and ensured the back door was locked and bolted too. Still not satisfied, I climbed the stairs, mounted the landing, and toppled the bookshelf overlooking the staircase. Down it went, books and all. I ran into the guest bedroom and hauled the bed out of there, tossing it down the stairs too. I simply had to distance myself from the carnage out there had to be free of it. Satisfied that the stairs were unnavigable, I ascended the ladder to the loft space, and quickly pulled it up behind me. I clicked on the overhead light, crawled into the tightest corner, and pulled my knees up to my chin. I was a mess, uh, I couldn't think straight, and that terrible melody went round and round in my head. Dances of the blood dance— with the dances of the blood dance, although the words were unfamiliar. I could have sworn I'd heard that melody before, but where? As I sat there amongst the clutter and cobwebs of the loft, I retraced my steps, 
the dancers, the ancient lady at Kettles, the man on the balcony, Miss Jenkins, Kath's bakery, the van. Yes, the van, that anonymous-looking grey van, pumping bluish fumes everywhere. But what were the other commonalities? People on all fours, resembling dogs, even sprouting hairs, consuming flesh and blood like cannibals. And then it came to me. Breadcrumbs. There had been bread products everywhere. Miss Jenkins had left breadcrumbs in her wake. Janet Morrison had been clutching that enormous cinnamon roll. Now that I thought about it, hadn't the man on the balcony been clutching something prior to leaping into the air? A sandwich, perhaps? And the foodstuffs on the floor at Kettle's, flattened fruit and trampled breadcrumbs. Had all this started at Kath's bakery somehow? Anything was possible. But I hadn't purchased anything from Kath's that morning. She'd sold out of all the good stuff, and I just hadn't liked the look of those solitary iced buns. Still, I was seeing things, and that brought my thoughts back to that anonymous-looking van. A further thought occurred. Had I really seen any of the things I thought I had seen? Had Miss Jenkins's apparent suicide prompted a series of unlikely events? What if that wasn't Nigel Phillips in the road licking up her remains? Perhaps Janet Morrison's dog, Nipper, had got out of the house somehow, and she'd simply given chase, only to find the dog had discovered what was left of Miss Jenkins. But I'd seen so much, too many things to discount as merely the result of some mild panic attack. Regardless, I had no desire to expose myself any further to the phenomenon, whatever it was. My suppositions would have to be retired for the day. I'd spend the night in the loft, locked safely away from the chaos and carnage occurring outside. And, luck permitting, I'd venture out in the morning, to discover that nothing whatsoever out of the ordinary had occurred—just a bad dream, and just another day in Pelton. Exhaustion must have knocked me for six, for when I awoke, I found myself lying quite comfortably in my bed in the main bedroom, with absolutely no knowledge whatsoever of how I ended up there. I glanced at the clock on the bed-table. 8.30 a.m., Monday, 27th of March. Monday? I'd slept for, what, twenty hours or more? I climbed from the bed tentatively, noting that I was wearing my pyjamas, and left the room, stepping onto the landing. There was my bookshelf, upright at the top of the stairs, books and other items carefully stacked upon the shelves. I peeped into the guest bedroom. There was the single bed just as it had been prior to my thrusting it over the balcony. Nothing upstairs was disturbed. And so, unsettled, I crept downstairs and strolled into the living room. I drew back the curtains and looked out onto the street. Just another glorious morning in Pelton. And just as my anxiety threatened to crest eleven, I felt the familiar, comforting presence of Mulder at my feet, rubbing against me in that inimitable way only cats can. But I was spurred on by the weirdness of it all, and so I quickly dressed, noting that the items of clothing I'd worn the previous day—a blue v-neck t-shirt and grey checked shorts—were among the items of clothing safely stowed away in my wardrobe. No sign of recent wear or dampness from the rain. Down by the front door in the vestibule, I found my shoes in a similar condition. No sign of recent wear. Not at all damp. Baffled, but driven by that undeniable curiosity we experience when confronted with a good old-fashioned mystery, I dressed and strode out into the sunlight, with only one destination in mind—Cath's Bakery. Upon reaching the bakery, 
I immediately scan the road, particularly the area upon which Ms. Jenkins's flattened body had lain bleeding just twenty-four hours earlier. But there were no signs that anything had ever lain there, no tire marks formed by Nigel Phillips's estate car as he'd hit the brakes. Nothing whatsoever. But that wasn't the strangest thing. The strangest thing was when I strolled into Cath's, ready to quiz her with regards to yesterday's madness, only to be confronted by both Cath and Miss Jenkins. There she was, full of life, gassing with Cath like it was the most natural thing in the world. And stranger still was the fact that Cath didn't seem at all surprised by Miss Jenkins's presence in the bakery. The pair were simply nattering away, which would have been odd prior to her suicide, considering her dementia. But— I started hesitantly. You— Miss Jenkins turned her gaze on me, but there was nothing unusual about her eyes, just the glazed, milky eyes of an old lady. But behind those eyes lurked something else. This wasn't the Miss Jenkins I had known, in possession of the vacant, unknowing coin-slot eyes of a woman suffering from dementia. No, this was somebody else entirely, and those eyes were full of alertness and purpose. I bit my lip, afraid to give myself away. Kath might have forgotten, but I hadn't. Never mind, I said, and backed the hell out of there. And out in the sunlight, as I wandered from street to street, I saw Nigel Phillips, and the man who leapt from the balcony. I saw the blood dancers, well, a couple of them anyway, walking and talking merrily amongst themselves. I saw Janet Morrison with her bull mastiff, Nipper, heading in the direction of the park and each and every one of them gave me the strangest look, and I knew what that look was. Unfamiliarity. They didn't know me. Those impostors had never known me. But did they know themselves? That was the question. But when, by chance, I crossed paths with Pat Jones and later Cheryl Davis, I was relieved to feel the warmth of familiar gazes upon me, eyes that knew, eyes that had always known. But, just like Kath, their memories of what had occurred that Sunday seemed to have been erased. Not that I probed them on the subject, it was just self-evident. Their eyes hadn't seen what I had seen. Their ears hadn't heard what I had heard. But those impostors, those replacements, they know I know, I'm sure of it. I mean, they're supposed to know, aren't they? They're here to keep an eye on us, to make sure we've all forgotten. Well, I haven't forgotten, and I refuse to forget— the day they all forgot will be forever etched upon my memory. I carry the torch for the real victims of Sunday the 26th. Ms. Jenkins, the blood dancers, Nigel Phillips and Janet Morrison. The list goes on. And when that van returns, which I'm sure it will in time, I'll be ready. Somehow I'll avenge the forgotten folk of Pelton. And that's it. That's my story. Barking, isn't it? As I said, I'll never be able to convince you of its truth, but what else can I do to prove it to you? Quiz Miss Jenkins directly? No chance. I mean, you've got to ask yourself. If that isn't the real Miss Jenkins, then just who or what the hell is it? And I'll always be haunted by one horrifying notion. What if I'm still under the influence of whatever it was the occupants of that van pumped into the air?'